This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Jackie Maddock, Head of Media for Blue Chip Communication. Jackie is now working in the corporate sector after an extensive TV career with Channel 10 in Sydney as a reporter and business editor. She also spent a few years working overseas in China and the United States. We chat about why she chose to specialise in finance, the challenges associated with working in Beijing and the shock US election result. Jackie is smart, fun and engaging, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Jackie Maddock, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What are you up to these days? I mean, apart from lamenting the state of the world. Yes, apart from that, we'll get to that in a sec. Okay, so I am heading up media in a financial services PR company named Blue Chip Communication, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. It's a great company, and essentially I am uh, introducing my clients, who are all financial services companies, to, um, to the media in Sydney and around the country, which is pretty handy um, considering all of the people that I've met uh, in my travels around the place. I was going to say, it's a nice fit for you. It is, yeah. Let's talk about the state of the world, as you just oh, mentioned there before. Well. What have you made of the last few days? Well, you can't see me, but um, I've been doing this a lot, like the head in the hands. Um, you know, I was just in New York last week. I spent some time living there. If you had told me that this was the way it was going to go, I would not have believed you. And, I don't, and nobody, nobody would have believed it. It's absolutely unbelievable. So let's look at it from, I guess, a, a realistic point of view in terms of you living and, and working in America. What was the vibe there last week? Is this something that could possibly happen or was everybody thinking an Australian way of saying things, she'll be right, mate. But um, it just wasn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think um, at one point I was looking in some of the souvenir shops in Times Square and all of the Donald Trump fridge magnets were sold out. And at the time I was thinking, hoping that that was like they'd been purchased ironically. <laughs> and now I'm not so sure. But certainly... Um, I never met anybody, and I'm talking Fox Business news executives, that ever said that they thought Trump would win. I never, ever met anybody. I met most on my most recent trip, I think, two people in New York that were voting for Trump, uh, and the language that both of those people used was that they thought Hillary was crooked, you know, and that, so that obviously has really been effective um, for a certain amount of voters, not the majority of voters, but enough needed to, to bag in the presidency. Um, but certainly everyone is really surprised. And I've been on the phone to American mates who are literally crying, you know, genuinely just so upset. But a lot of them are Midwesterners whose parents voted for Trump. When we look at that, like we talk about the, the battleground for middle America. Yeah. So many of them obviously voted for Donald Trump. How was that? completely overlooked by all of the 
so-called pollsters and analysis that sort of went into it many, many weeks and months beforehand. It's, it seems like these days that the media coverage and, you know, us being a, a part of that for, for quite some time that was such a, a reliable and trusted indicator, it's no longer exists anymore, just in so many different things that we've seen over the, the last 12 months. And Brexit, obviously, is another example. I think, um, I'm not sure who coined it, but somebody said, I think it perhaps was somebody on CNN, said data is dead. And I think that's such an interesting concept. But actually, um, we've broken down the numbers here because we're in the PR and marketing business. And essentially what's happened is that Donald Trump has earned something like twice as much, almost $6 billion in free media than Hillary Clinton. So the traditional, um, you know, beautiful advertisements and, and fundraising and all that kind of stuff hasn't worked here because every time that he has tweeted something controversial, something ugly, it's being picked up by the mainstream press and they've reported it and it's just been saturation coverage. So it's just been this free publicity machine that's just been self-perpetuating. Not endorsed by his own party and he's done it all, like you said, all by himself, created his own buzz and his own thing. And then how does that then correlate to getting into the hearts and minds of everyday Americans? I think perhaps it's just repetition for emphasis. You know, he started as a celebrity candidate and his marketing strategy of saying outlandish and outrageous things that that get out there in the free press has somehow worked. I think the media, certainly um, I spent some time working at the Huffington Post in New York and I remember that um, Ariana, the um, founder of Huffington Post, had, had sort of decreed to staff that Donald Trump's uh, candidacy was only to be covered in the uh, entertainment pages. So, you know, like the way it works in online is he tagged onto certain... So that's where it was framed initially exactly. before it got out of control. Yeah. Did the Democrats get it wrong in their, their candidate? It certainly seems as though Hillary was not the candidate for the moment. Um, and I've read lots of stuff about how people within the party said that Bernie actually was tapping into some of the same anti-establishment things that the Trump voters have, have ended up um, holding dear. But I guess you know how it goes. She'd, she'd run against Obama. She, she was expected to win that. She lost that. It was her turn. You know you know how these things go with parties. Yeah. Um, and it's just an absolute frigging disaster. I'm devastated. So how will it go now? Like we were just sort of chatting just briefly be beforehand, like will he even see out a term? Surely there are calmer and stronger heads that are within the Republican Party, even though he was not endorsed by them that will guide his path. You have to hope so. You have to hope so. You have to hope that there's... We're talking about the free world here, right? That's right. It's unbelievable. It is un... Oh, my God, I'm doing the head in the hand thing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. He... Um, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that there are heaps of really smart bureaucrats, experienced, knowledgeable, intelligent, that will be surrounding him that can hopefully talk him down from the ledge... And the people in those positions, as far as I'm concerned, um, have a lot of pressure on them and I really hope that they will do the right thing on a number of different fronts. 
but this is uncharted, unprecedented. It's a joke. We were just watching the video of um, Trump sitting in the Oval Office for the first time with Obama when on Monday Obama is standing in front of rallies in Michigan at the 11th hour mocking Trump for having had his Twitter account taken away, saying if he's not trusted by his campaign team to to tweet, how can we trust him with the nuclear codes? And there they are both sitting there side by side today. It's complete schmuzzle. I'm so upset. All right, let's get on to subjects more interesting. You. (laughs) I don't think that's true. Now... Where did it all begin for you? Because obviously people would know you as a familiar face on on TV screens and and different things like that. The interest in media, where did that come from and how did you end up treading that path? I think it's a common kind of tale. Um, I always liked storytelling. I always liked writing. Um, I was a massive nerd at school and I don't mind telling you that in 1991, during the first Gulf War, my primary school teacher was quite surprised when on a Monday morning I handed her an assignment that I'd done on the Gulf War and she said but Jackie I didn't send an assignment on the Gulf War I said I know but I just I just wanted to do one so I think maybe it goes back to that that age Um, and I guess professionally I sort of did the CSU Bathurst thing like lots of people that you know that have done this podcast and lots of people that we know um And then from there, I first sort of, I got my first gig off the internet, if you can believe it, of Seek.com when they wanted um, a small tech company finance um, trading platform. As part of the software, you'd get this little box that I'd pop up in and give you a share market report. And now it's called the Finance News Network, plug, plug. Um, And so I sort of started there. And then from there, I managed to get myself into Comsec. And Comsec at the time was doing um, crosses with Channel 10. And then I sidestepped into Channel 10. Um, and they sent me straight to Canberra when I was about 25. So I was there for the fall of Howard and the rise of Rudd. And that was a fantastic experience. And then they moved me to Sydney. And I did five years in the newsroom there. And then since we've last seen each other, I moved to Beijing for a year and I hosted a business program on Chinese state television, CCTV. And then I tried my luck in America for 18 months doing all sorts of different things. And here I am. Let's unpack all of that (laughs) and go back to CSU. As we've discussed with a few people, as you mentioned, that have gone there, what was that experience like from your point of view? What did it give you? What did it open your eyes to? All of that kind of thing. Because as we've said, so many successful media people that have gone through there have gone on to forge such great and extensive careers. I think it's a very practical course. Um, and I think there's also something about having a very, a very small community, but everybody living there as well. It's such a holistic experience. Um, uh, I certainly had an absolute ball. Um, but that said I think you mostly learn everything on the job in this game wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I don't necessarily think that a university degree is actually putting you that far ahead of people that aren't doing university degrees it's such a learn on the job um, skill set and so when you when you look back on that on that time obviously it prepared you in some way for what you were going to do. Where did the whole interest in finance and all of that come into play? Was it that first job that you went for that you thought, right, if I'm going to get in, I'm going to have to learn some new things here? And is that where that 
particular area came in, in, into play for you? Absolutely. Um, the job advertisement that I mentioned before was looking for a newsreader and there was um, a very qualified um, journalist with something like 25 years' experience in financial markets reporting that was there, part of the, the gig, right? Mm. And then within six weeks he'd quit. So my boss was like, okay, Jackie, it's time for you to learn this because I'm going to need to get you to write the reports from now on. So that was a very steep learning curve. Was that another language for you? Were, were you interested at all in finance or economics? Was there any sort of joining of the dots, as it were? Uh, I come from a family of economists, so I guess it's perhaps in the blood. Um, and I studied business at high school, um, but certainly hadn't done any, you know, hadn't done economics or commerce um, tertiary level stuff. But um, I really like finance um, and economics because it's just an explanation, isn't it, of what's going on in the world. And I find that really, obviously really interesting. So if you can understand why things are doing what they're doing, like, for example, an excellent um, example right now on world markets where everything's going crazy and why that is, I think that's something that I was interested in learning. And it served me really well as having a point of difference to most of my peers um, when traditionally finance and business reporting is... Um, Not seen as very cool. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So how did you go from that, that, that point of view? Like you'd obviously identified that niche and something that you wanted to pursue, but again, you've got to get good at the presentation style of it to make it interesting for, for the layman or to explain it in a way that the penny drops, if you pardon the pun, for the everyday person out there that wants to know what's happening in the financial world, but it may not have a huge significant bearing on their day-to-day activities? Well, certainly that's one of the challenges, I think. And and with television, turning percentages into pictures was always difficult. But um, in terms of global world events, I sort of had a really interesting run, you know. So when I became the business editor at 10, that was just before the GFC happened. And then obviously the stories um, that ensued over the the couple of years after that were all really interesting and and they became... um, it was news that actually everybody was interested in and everybody was affected by. Um, so I, I think I've had a pretty good run in terms of the cycle of business news. History often plays a part in economics. How important was that for you to identify trends and cycles and watching things go through and able to explain that in a, a relatively easy manner for people to understand? That was really important. And you were always looking for... Um, so, so, I mean, it's about condensing complex ideas down to an economy of words. Um, and, and that became a skill that I became pretty good at. Um, I, that sounds stupid, but you know what I mean? I became very confident in that. Who taught you that? Uh, were there mentors or people along the way that, that helped you get that information out there in the way that it needed to be presented? Absolutely. I think the person I would cite them as being the most helpful is Craig James, uh, of Comsec, I only worked with him for less than a year, but he was a fantastic mentor, and he has a really good ability of picking out the interesting stuff from all the boffin jargon. Um, so I would give him full credit for that. And what was it about his style that you liked the most? Uh, I guess he tried to use normal everyday language again to explain complex concepts um, in a simple way. Um, you only have 30 seconds to explain why currency markets are doing what they're doing or why the Aussie dollar's done this or that. You have to be succinct and you have to be animated. Um, 
and he's good at that, and I guess I copied him. Bringing that to a TV screen and trying to do that on a daily basis, when you moved to 10, there was obviously so many great people that were around you then and there that would have also helped you with your presentation style and your ability to deliver such um, complex information. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Too many to mention. Um, But, you know, it's worth saying as well that um, I've always been a ham. You know, it's very important to to be a ham. I think my mum tells me that when she first took me to dancing class when I was five, that I'm like the short chubby one standing at the end of the row of girls and that the teacher was like, okay, everyone, we want you to smile like Jackie. And I remember that. (laughs) And I guess I just have always um, been a ham and had no problem smiling big and I think it's because the guy at the news agent when I was little used to give me a Freddo frog if I smiled big for him it's probably something gross that needs to be unpacked in that um, but um yeah no I I liked performing on camera I've always been a ham and I think you'll find that most people in this game that <laughs> are very similar when you were presenting and you were you were thinking about the the career that you wanted to pursue obviously you went down that whole TV side of things, that's something that, as you said before, it it sort of seemed to come naturally for you to do. Also, I studied at the Max Rowley Media Academy. As I did. (laughs) When did you do that? Oh, that's awesome. When did I do that? Um, Okay, so I'd finished uni. I was working in a completely unrelated field, like most people, looking to get my first um, foot in the door. So this would have been 2003. Right, I'm long gone by that stage. But okay, tell me about your experiences there at Max's ah, because it was, so it was an interesting little terrace house there in, in yeah, Redfern, Redfern where like brothels on both sides. And you're right, yes, there were brothels on both sides. Yes. Um, and there was a strange looking Iraqi man that looked after the shop across the road. But, <laughs> but um, what did Max teach you when you went to his school? Which I, I would imagine he would have been close to retirement at that stage. Is he still around? He's still around, but I don't think the school exists. Oh, bless him. Yeah. Um, I remember, I mean, the technology has changed so much since then, but if I'm remembering correctly, remember that rolly thing? Yes. It was like a a rolling pin and you would have to sticky tape all the pieces of paper together. Yes, and and write your own scripts and then wind it on. That was the old-fashioned auto cue, but did it prepare you for what was to come? Um, did you use auto cue when you were at ten? Yeah, yeah, we did. And um, in all, like in China and all the gigs I've had, we have done, we have you know in studio had that sort of setup. Um, I, you know what? It actually taught me to not be uncomfortable making an idiot of myself. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Is it because he encouraged you to do magic tricks and do stuff that? you could do that you didn't need to worry about who was watching or, yeah. or anything like that. And yeah, yeah. just different, you know, he had like a, a course outline, but within that framework were many different things would it, which would allow you to express yourself in different ways. And, you know, that was part of the, the course was that it would was different, I don't know, themes or things that would run through, but you reflect on it now and you think, why did he make me do that? Oh, but yeah. then the penny then drops and it's just like, okay, well, I'm less prohibitive in my my actions and my movements now because of that experience. Exactly. Absolutely, because you'd be asked to do talks for, you know, 10-minute talks and things that were recorded 
of things about your family and show photos and tell us the story of this or that. And you can't really, um, I mean, I'm thinking perhaps actors on stage can recite dialogue for 10 minutes, but, you know, that wasn't an environment that we could do that. So you had to talk off the top of your head, right? You had to be... Um, comfortable doing that. So I think that's probably the main takeaway. Do you remember the room downstairs that everybody had to come down and watch? Yeah, the couches. They were legendary. <laughs> they were about 50 years old, but and you used to sink in them. And I think that was part of the trick. If you were sunk in the couch and you couldn't get up, you had to sit there and listen to the, all the other playbacks. So I think that was uh, part of the mischievous plan of Max Rowley. What a great business model. <laughs> Get people to sit in sunken chairs and listen to other people. Yeah. But I guess, were there many other notable people that came out during your uh, time there with with Uh, Max? I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever discussed it with anybody. Mm. I reckon most people would have done it. When did you do it? I did it in 1996. Wow. So for a couple of years, actually, two years. And do you ever remember any of the feedback that he said to you? I remembered a bit of feedback. I used to have to do these bizarre exercises. One was tiny tap dances and another one was, I don't know, I just remember doing the exercises and getting the feedback and everybody used to be 100% plus on the senior advanced scale, so it was great. So good times at the old 241 Chalmers Street. It was like a TV set up, so it was, you know, the TV station was there and the radio station was there and bless him, it was a... So many people I know that have gone through there and, and had great success. So um, he's obviously cotton on to a great formula. It's a shame that it's still not around. Mm. Now, you obviously, like many people, went through the, the downsizing at, at 10 in 2012, but oh, there was yeah. a whole lot of action that went on before that. I mean, Channel 10, for rhyme or reason, always seemed to be the, the one TV network that was always cutting back and people had to take on more responsibilities. How did you... Go through that, having seen people leave that you liked beforehand. It was awful. It was awful. Like, you know so many of the people. Um, I've made some of the best friends in my life from that place. And even though so many people have dispersed and gone on to successful um, roles at other places, everybody always talks about and agrees how uniquely fantastic that bunch of people was and how fantastic a time we had. We had a, um, a catch-up only a couple of weeks ago and somebody who's now at seven remarked, and this was in Piedmont, just near the studios, which will make sense when I tell you what he said. Yeah. He said, it feels like we've just finished the show and we've walked up the street like nothing's changed. And these are people like me who've not been there for five years. Um, it really, there was something very, very special. Because, like, remember when we look at it, like, Channel 7 and Channel 9 were always looked as the news powerhouses, yet Channel 10 was churning out the one-hour bulletin long before it was cool, and now they're both doing the same thing. So, and it was on at the the hour of 5 o'clock before everybody else was doing it, and now all of a sudden, you know, there's news bulletins at 3 o'clock and 4.30 and all over the place, when back in the day, Channel 10 was sort of seen as looked at the sort of like the weird kid that was doing this one-hour news bulletin at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, yet it spawned so many successful journalists and people that have gone on to careers in, in other different areas. So you're right in what you say, even though it was probably looked on as a bit sort of strange. But we wore that proudly. Yeah. You know, um, we called ourselves the 10 News Force. We even had a hand gesture. And there was something almost, because the rivalry between 7 and 9 was so prominent, continues to be, there was something about not being in that race, because I know that, that that's a lot of pressure on a lot of people that are in those situations. There was something about sort of being the offbeat 
um, competitor in that scene that, um, I don't know, not that we didn't take ourselves seriously, but but we def- definitely had a good time while we put the news to air. Um, and like you say, some really fantastic people have come through that building and remain some of my best mates. Finding content for an hour at News Bulletin every night of the week, it's not exactly easy, is it? No, it's not easy. Um, I think being a TV reporter is a really uh, unique set of skills. You can look at it in a couple of different ways. You can look at it as though you have the opportunity to create and produce a mini film every day that you put to air and you are um, essentially in charge of uh, scouting location, casting, all these sorts of things. It's a really, really creative process, but the deadlines are insane. Um, working in the private sector now, I'm very grateful that I had that deadline experience because there's nothing like it. There's no, I don't think there's anything anywhere else in the world where your deadline is relentless constantly. So it's really good um, training ground for, for other things. Um, but, yeah, I definitely miss it. I, I, it was a privilege to talk to some of the people I got to, to talk to and to tell their stories. Um, but I think that... Uh, yeah, the, the, the guys that are, that are doing it um, work really hard and they essentially um, are up against some pretty steep deadlines the more coverage you, that there is, like you say, more bulletins, etc. But it's a privilege and an honour to be ringside for some of the most amazing things that happen in history. It really is. So what's it like being there in the day-to-day running of a, of a newsroom that's churning out like that amount of content each day? I mean... It's not only the people that are there that on air that are presenting all of that, but there's a huge team of people that are behind the scenes that are doing all of the the legwork, I guess, to make the, the on-air team look really good every night. So what's it like witnessing that from the its purest form in terms of when a story is just breaking or just sort of trying to uncover a story? What's that like behind the scenes? So I guess there's something tangible about the energy in the room changing. And the reason I say that is because when I was based in Beijing uh, at CCTV, which is sort of like the Australian Broadcasting Corporation of China, a little bit different in its editorial um, views, um, being the communist government of China, yeah. etc. Um, but so I was one of, I was one of uh, two non-Chinese people, so... I didn't speak Mandarin, but everybody there was operating in English as their second language, which I take my hat off to them. Incredible. But so there was breaking news. There was a bombing um, at the Forbidden City um, in October 2013, and everybody was started talking really loudly, and I couldn't understand what they were saying, but I could just feel the tension in the room rising, just as it had done in all the other newsrooms I'd worked in. And so it was a really interesting experience of... Figuring out that it's something, you know, hearts are beating faster and its pulses are racing. Um, And that's really exciting. Um, You know that. You think about now doing what you're doing, do you miss the other part of it, the TV part of it, the TV aspect of it? it? Is it something that you've gradually got accustomed to? Okay, so there's that mad rush that goes on um, in a TV sense to now a more relaxed environment where... You get lunch breaks and stuff, you know. <laughs> it's, lunch break? What's yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. There were days that, you know, you wouldn't be able to, you literally would not have time to go to the bathroom for 13 hours. Um, uh, I had a really good time doing it, but I also um, feel very ready to take on other challenges, um, and that's what I'm doing. 
one thing that's interesting is at Blue Chip we um, do a lot of media training for executives and things like that to be interviewed by the press. So my skill set is to be able to bring to them, okay, well, when they're asking you this, what are they actually meaning? How best to, to answer things and how to present yourself? And that's really enjoyable. So what kind of things do you pass on from your experiences? Like, a, Is it the way people look? Is it the way they dress? Is it the way that they, like you said, answer a particular question so that they're not giving up too much information but they're not at the same time completely deadpanning the, the interviewer? So, Absolutely. It's um, about where you place your eyes. It's about how you square your shoulders. It's about what you do with the tone of your voice. It's speaking in um, sets of threes. It's messaging. It's all those sorts of things that, that we have that knowledge that we can help people that haven't worked for 15 years in the media and I really enjoy it. It's a game of chess really isn't it really between the person doing the interview and then the person that's um, answering the questions. Absolutely and And can I just say how bizarre it is to be being interviewed? (laughs) So weird. I hope I'm doing a good job. Maybe you would critique me on my interviewing technique at the end of this. That'd be good. Yeah, oh, yeah. goodness. I look forward to taking notes. So what was it like? You sort of touched on it briefly there, working in, in China, working in different parts of the world. I mean, what did that do for you, not only professionally but personally? Uh, well, personally, I guess it made me a lot tougher and a lot more resilient. Um, Going to a place where you didn't know the language, how did that come about it was like, not easy it was so not easy so 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 okay so so going back in time to when the waves of redundancies were going on at channel 10 and um you know the network had been through some really tough times and things were you know it was just a it was just a pretty tough time for everybody and i got to the stage where i thought you know what been with this company seven years I've had great opportunities but now I want to go overseas and see what else is out there sort of thing so I took a redundancy um, which worked out great I remember when the money hit my account I was with Josh Murphy um, and we went to the casino and I thought should I put it all on red or black and he talked me out of that fortunately so um, <laughs> I didn't know you were the gambling type <laughs> well, I'm not, but I just was feeling a little I could have been I could have been talked into it but fortunately I was talked out of it so anyway, I took my money off to China and um, it was bizarre. I'm talking, so there's no Wi-Fi in the TV studio in case, you know, I was I was post something on the internet that was against the government. So yeah. there was no, so um, all of the programs had to be written, signed off on by eight levels of bureaucracy within the government. Wow. To be allowed to go to air and that had to be signed off 20 minutes before the program. Then the tapes with the um, auditory script on them would be brought down to the ground level um, and inserted into the auto queue. Um, so you weren't allowed to ad lib change. You know, it just was not that sort of environment at all. You just had to read what was on the auto queue. Um, which was bizarre. What happens if something didn't get signed off? Well, this is it. So breaking news, breaking news is a big deal, right? So because um, everyone can see they've got CNN on one screen and BBC on another screen and they and there's these big, you know, breaking news banners that say breaking news, breaking news. And so there'd obviously been a decree from above that CCTV should cover more breaking news. So I didn't understand Mandarin, but occasionally I would hear people running around saying, breaking news, breaking news, and it just was that they wanted to compete with CNN and BBC, but they actually physically couldn't because the very act of breaking news is to be immediate to air. Yes. But because of the hierarchy of how many people needed to sign off on it, it just it just wasn't possible. 
Extraordinary. It was bizarre. And, I mean, I'm talking cameramen who were asleep on the studio um, floor. You know, one time I was worried that I could hear the snoring on my lapel mic and I had to peg something at the guy to be like, wake up, I can hear you. (laughs) So you would describe it as an interesting experience. It was an interesting experience. I really liked it, um, but it was completely bizarre, yeah. And then so what then prompted the change then to move on and, and work in the, the US? Obviously, it's where everything happens, so you yes. want to be there. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'd been to New York a bunch of times. The goal had always been to um, to work there. I remember Jim Carroll, who was the news director at Channel 10, once upon a time, set up during my first trip a visit to meet with a guy at CBS because we had a um, content sharing arrangement with them. And I... Honestly, I would have been 27 and did I think it was the most exciting thing in the world to be trotting into the CBS studios in New York. It was mm. it made me so happy. Um, and um, I don't, yeah, I really liked that. Totally different situation when you go to America um, without a visa. You know, it's it's tough town very tough town and I I had lots of great interviews um, and they'd be really excited about my resume and thought I presented really great in the room and then would say um, oh you need to be sponsored and I'd say yeah and they'd say oh thanks for coming oh so what's that like just getting that rejection like it's really tough man it's like be like an actor going for permanent auditions like you know waiting for the series to be picked up only to be told no sorry it's not for you exactly i did do some so the so i did do some cool stuff though while i was there um including i did some work for the project so one day i went and produced a segment with rove at sesame street which was insane yeah and both rove and i were just like this is crazy until you see snuffleupagus and big birds limp corpse-like costumes just hanging from the roof. Right. I think that really has done something to me. It's, it's, that was pretty scary, actually. And I thought I was so clever getting my picture taken under the Sesame Street sign. A guy, one of the camera guys on the floor was like, do you want me to take your picture? I said, yeah, that'd be great. So as I'm standing under the Sesame Street sign, he picked up the camera to take my photo, but he dropped it and it smashed on the floor. And he said, oh, sorry. So when he's taking the picture, it's just me going, oh. <laughs> A wonderful takeaway. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's all about the takeaways. Um, so working overseas and comparing that to working here, what was that like for you? It's much easier to work in Sydney when you have the right visa, you speak the language, you're familiar with everything and the way that everything works. We speak the same language, obviously, as um, Americans, but there are so many differences that we don't see on the surface culturally, all kinds of things. But I reckon living, having lived in China and having lived in New York, it's giving me a really good sort of global perspective on how to do business with different cultures. And um, I think it puts me in good stead for a pretty exciting future in the corporate sector. And so professionally, would you ever consider going back media-wise or is this something that you feel like you've done your time, as it were, and then it's time to use the skills that you've learnt in other areas in helping other people. You just nailed it. Yeah, that's how I feel. What would you say for younger people that are coming through into the industry, trying to break through now where 
it seems a whole lot more difficult than it once was to do that kind of job that you once did, identifying a niche and then going after that particular area when it seems multi-skilling is the, the, the way that people need to be able to get a start and get ahead. Well, firstly, I would encourage any young person to become a software engineer, a <coughs> software engineer. Um, but if you can't be talked out of wanting to be a journalist, and I completely understand that, um, I think it's important to um, have as much digital experience as you can because obviously that's the way that things are going. But, yeah, multi-skilled operating obviously puts you ahead of the curve. Um, and and also think about that uh, storytelling is obviously the best thing that we do, humans do, but there's lots of different ways to tell stories. Jackie Maddock, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. There she is, Jackie Maddock, Head of Media for Blue Chip Communication. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Jackie, please send her a tweet. She's at Jackie underscore Maddock. That's J-A-C-Q-U-I underscore M-A-D-D-O-C-K. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast. Podcast.